when thinner means sicker and heavier means healthier. Now, wait a minute. That's just, that sounds like just the opposite of what you hear from everybody all the time, including most of my videos on this channel. Well, now think about it. There are places where, where this occurs. In fact, I've got a video uh, from a New England jour Journal article titled, Heavier But Healthier. In that video, uh, they did the research showing that, yes, people that stop smoking gain weight. Even though they gain weight, they're clearly healthier than they were prior to stopping smoking. So what's going on there is you're obviously weighing the risk of obesity versus a much heavier risk of smoking on your metabolism. Now, <clears throat> is this a collection of examples like that? Uh, I would say, yeah, there's a lot of that component to it, but it's also still a significant debate within the, within the medical community, uh, preventive medicine community. I will tell you this, it's actually, as I've seen it, and I've, I've been through this, some of the science behind these discussions, I really feel like it's more often used as, as a, uh, uh, a justification for keeping weight, uh, for having weight. Uh, but we'll talk about that a little bit later as we get to the end and we start bottom lining it. Now, this is a book uh, by Dr. Carl Levy. Dr. Carl Levy is not a, um, he's not an, uh, an untrained doc. He's not a, a, a non-expert who's just written some inflammatory stuff. He's a well-respected endocrinologist that um, covers some data. In fact, if you look at... Uh, uh, Nature Magazine, a very, very well-respected uh, magazine, he, uh, he has co-authored a significant review article on this topic, Healthy Obese versus Unhealthy Lean, The Obesity uh, Paradox in Nature Reviews Endocrinology. If you look at the, um, just the title and abstract, again, you see Carl Levy there, the title, uh, 2015, and again, a uh, not a lightweight journal at all. Um, <clears throat> the Nature magazines are one of the uh, most res well-respected magazines in science in the world. Now I'm going to skip over uh, some of the text on here. It basically is just saying, look, um, overweight and obesity have reached epidemic proportions in the U.S. and most of the rest of the world. Um, and here's where the paradox comes in. Um, <clears throat> some individuals with obesity can, can, can be considered healthy with regards to their metabolic and cardiorespiratory fitness, which has been termed the obesity paradox. Now, uh, those of you who are beginning to think of the Schwarzenegger uh, adjustment to BMI are thinking exactly along the right terms. Before the Schwarzenegger adjustment came up, people said, you know what? Uh, everybody with uh, BMI in the high 20s, 30s, and above has a health problem. Other people began to say, wait a minute, what if you're built like Arnold Schwarzenegger? You don't have fat, uh, or Schwarzenegger during his prime. Uh, you don't have fat. I don't think he has much fat right now either. Um, 
is it the fat or is it the mass? Uh, originally, there was some question about maybe that muscle creates um, burden on the heart as well. No, it's, it's the fat mass, and that's part of what's going on here. Um, <clears throat> now they're going on to say, look, there are people that have significant fat mask, mass that are still healthier than people that are lightweight. We just covered one of those situations. Uh, we've covered a couple of articles, for example, in, um, uh, in a population in China where there was some similarities. But again, what are, the, uh, what are some details around this? This is the crux of the debate. So his article goes on to discuss the, uh, the suggestion that greater emphasis should be placed on improving fitness rather than weight loss per se in the primary and secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease, at least in patients with overweight and class one obesity. In other words, for people that are just a little bit overweight, should we focus more on um, exercise or should we focus on weight loss? And we'll again get to the a bottom line on that a little bit later. Uh, this is another article that has contributed to this debate, and it brings up a very interesting technique. This is a it's in uh, JAMA, uh, the JAMA network, and again, JAMA is no lightweight either. This is association between obesity and cardiovascular outcomes. It's a s systematic review and meta-analysis using uh, of articles that use Mendelian randomization studies. Now, what is that? Well, here's, uh, here's going to be a significant component of this video. We're going to talk about Mendelian randomization studies. Now, if we were going to, uh, this is a comparison between Mendelian randomization and randomized clinical trials. If we were going to say, look, we want to find out whether obesity causes heart disease or if it's just related to it, then you would have to set a uh, control population and a study population. In the study population, you would have to make these people obese. You'd have to randomize between the two, and you'd have to keep people blinded to whether or not they became obese, them and their doctors. Well, that's never going to happen. Neither one of those. You're not going to make people, uh, you're not going to select people at random and make them uh, obese. And you're certainly not going to be, be able to blind people or their docs to the fact that they've become obese. So how do we deal with this? Um, there is a type of epidemiology that has begun to blossom in this age of genetics. And it's based on the fact that <clears throat> there are genes associated with uh, certain medical outcomes. For example, there are genes for blue, uh, blue eyes, green eyes, etc. Well, <clears throat> There's also a random mix. We have, we're assuming in Mendelian randomization that there's a random mix of genes. So whether you got blue-eyed genes from your mom or dad or brown-eyed genes for your mom and dad, basically, for the most part, occurs at random. So let's go back and look at something that we know, we've heard of, C-reactive protein. There are genes that... Um, cause elevated C-reactive protein. 
Um, basically what they do, uh, it appears that some of them create more, cause you to create more CRP. Other ones just cause you to not break down CRP. So they've looked at that using Mendelian randomization. And the evidence is that CRP doesn't cause heart disease. It's a marker for heart disease. Now, how did they know that? Well, they took a population, a, a large population, and separated them out. The people that have genetic reasons for a high CRP, and they looked to see if they tend to have higher heart attack risk. They did not. Then they looked at the people that uh, did not have the uh, genetic, uh, genetically high CRP. They had the same heart attack risk as the first. However, we know, and again, if you don't know this, then you need to see some of our other videos, and you need to take the inflammation panel, or the inflammation course. We know that when CRP uh, increases in somebody, their risk for heart attack and stroke uh, is increasing. And that's what you see in this, uh, uh, this image right here. Circulating usual concentrations of CRP, if those are increased, uh, adjusted for age, sex, ethnicity, and uh, other adjustments, if those are, are uh, increased, you have an increased risk beyond normal for a heart attack. Now, how about people that have genetically raised uh, concentrations of CRP? They don't have that increased risk for heart attack. So yes, CRP is associated with it, um, but something else is causing the elevated CRP in these people up top, causing, causing you to have an increase beyond your normal CRP that's also causing heart attack and stroke risk. Well, again, you should, we should know that. That's inflammation. Inflammation can cause both elevated CRP and uh, it causes heart attack and stroke risk. So if you have um, genetic elevation of CRP, that's not going to cause the risk. That's the basics of uh, Mendelian randomization. So let's go back, like this study, and apply that whole concept to um, obesity and heart attacks. That's exactly what they did here. And in, and in fact, they did a meta-analysis. They ended up finding several studies that uh, actually did this activity. Um, <clears throat> sources they used for data were Medline and Scopus. Uh, study selections, as you can imagine, as we talked about, they wanted to find studies that linked both, um, that studied the linkage between obesity and heart attack and stroke, and uh, also looked for obesity-related genes. And there are obesity-related genes, just like there are CRP-related genes. At the, at the end, they had about, um, the studies themselves uh, there were 4,660 uh, 4, potentially re relevant articles. Only 2,500 uh, titles were given proper screening. Seven studies were included, and five studies uh, at the end of this uh, actually covered all that we needed to see, or all that the authors needed to see to um, look at Mendelian randomization.
you may say, well, five studies, that's not very many. But again, we're talking about uh, large population uh, genome-wide association studies, GWAS. So huge number of people, 881,692 participants. Now here's what they found. Um, is obesity is associated with type 2 diabetes and coronary heart disease. Um, it did not show that same linkage for strokes. Now, how could that be? Well, we have already seen there are some, there's a huge overlap in terms of risk for stroke versus risk for heart, heart attack and type 2 diabetes. And we know that type 2 diabetes is a risk for both heart attack and stroke. We also know, however, that there is not 100% overlap between the two. Um, <clears throat> atrial fib, for example, tends to have uh, more of a uh, risk for stroke. Hypertension tends to drive more stroke risk. Uh, so, again, there's not 100% overlap between heart attack and stroke. So, that certainly may be a real item, or it may have just been something that washed out as you start looking at the articles. Now, <clears throat> we got into a lot of detail. Again, a lot of the geeks, a lot of people that are uh, fairly sophisticated in this area, and that's a lot of our, my viewers, are going to be very uh, interested to see that. And I'll provide you the links so you can go read it yourself. But let's go back. We talked about bottom line. I get a lot of grief about bottom line at Brewer. So let's do just that. And I'm trying to find that. Okay. So this is back to the... Um, Levier, is it Levy? Uh, the, yeah, the Levy article. He did go into some key points, and I think it's worth uh, going over those key points because the last one is the bottom line. First, the prevalence of obesity has increased in most of the world. Past few decades, uh, patients with obesity have more cardiovascular risk and metabolic risk, and it's being driven by the fat mass. Um, fat cells have an impact. They tend to drive insulin resistance. Data suggests that metabolically healthy ob obesity, especially with combine when combined with a high level of fitness, is associated with at most, <coughs> excuse me, a minimal increase in overall risk for cardiovascular disease and mortality. In patients with, with established cardiovascular diseases and other chronic diseases, uh, conditions such as kidney disease, severe arthritis, those with overweight, uh, overweight and class 1 obesity, in other words, a little bit of obesity, tend to have a better prognosis. Does that mean that if you're staying in shape, you're thin, you have a couple of these, you want to gain weight? No, it doesn't mean that. And again, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Fitness is more important than fatness for long-term prognosis. In the obesity paradox, fitness markedly alters the relationship between adiposity, or in other words, being obese, and long-term health outcomes. In other words, metabolically, having fat mass does drive things like insulin resistance. However, being in shape, exercise, is a, um, is a huge antidote vaccine for that, basically. And here's the bottom line. Here's the last comment. Despite accumulating evidence on the obesity paradox, 
The available data still support purposeful weight loss for long-term health, particularly when combined with increased physical activity, muscular strength, and fitness. Uh, for those of you who are interested in uh, some of these a um, little bit uh, deeper, more nuanced uh, debates and, uh, uh, and discussions, this reminds me of a book called The Sports Gene. In The Sports Gene, the author basically uh, deals with Malcolm uh, Gladwell's comment about the 10,000-hour rule. Malcolm Glad Gladwell said in the 10,000-hour rule, Look, if you play a sport for 10,000 hours, you can get to professional level. It's practice, practice, practice. <coughs> and there's, <coughs> there's a lot of truth to that. But the author of the sports gene shows case after case after case where it's both. So, for example, I could practice 10,000 hours of basketball. I'm still not going to become a LeBron James. Now, <clears throat> I just don't have the genetics. I'm 5'10", not 6'10". Uh, I'm not going to get there. However, there are also people that have uh, genetics compatible uh, and competitive with somebody like LeBron or another basketball star, but they're not basketball uh, dominating basketball stars. Why is that? Because they didn't practice 10,000 hours or 15 or 20,000 hours. So the bottom line is it takes both. How about the obesity paradox? Should we lose weight or should we exercise? Bottom line, both. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at prevmedhealth.com. To learn more, watch our videos on YouTube at Ford Brewer MD MPH. Thank you very much for your interest.